Earlier this week, I downloaded all of the information and data that Facebook has on me. And I hate myself. I'm just going to be real honest with you guys. It was not a pleasant experience to see my entire existence summarized in a file that was less than one gigabyte. It just seemed very, very strange to me, very wrong on a whole bunch of different levels. Now, have any of you guys done this? Of course, you've probably heard about how Facebook has, you know, sold your data. If that's surprising to you, then you haven't been paying attention for years. So it's not like I'm freaking out because I just found this out. But I thought since Facebook has made all the data on me available that they carry and use and sell to advertisers, I might as well give it a look. So it actually forms a record of every stupid thing I've said ever online, okay? And it shows me all of the personal data and all of the marketing categories that I fit into online. And so for some silly reason, I thought it would be funny to share it with you this morning. So I'm going to let you see some of my personal information from Facebook's data dump. Here's the thing. Facebook gave me a folder and it said, these are all the interests that we think you have, Dan, based on what you've clicked, ads you've watched, posts that you've made. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. I wanted to highlight a few of them. According to Facebook, apparently I am interested in mega churches, which is probably true because I'm a pastor. And so I follow a lot of well-known churches and watch what they're doing and steal their best ideas. So um, yeah, I'm probably interested in mega churches. Then it said, I'm interested in Byzantine art. Okay. 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 Then I discovered this little gem as I was working through the data. Facebook thinks that I am interested in paste as a food. Now, you guys, I am so embarrassed by this. When I saw it, I was blushing at my own computer screen in the office like nobody's around. And I'm like, what in the world could I have possibly done to ever convince Facebook that I'm interested in that? that that would be an interest of mine. I just, it doesn't even make sense. And so then I started thinking, well, I wonder if there's a way to correct this. Could I inform Facebook that this is not true of me? It turns out there's no way to do that. Once you're in one of these marketing categories, it's nearly impossible to get out. So I thought, if nothing else, I will stand in front of my church and I will clear the air And I will say unequivocally, without any reservation or hesitation, I am not interested in Byzantine art. (laughs) Facebook got that one wrong. Okay, so then they gave me some other info. And they gave me a list of all the advertisers who had uploaded my contact info. And what do you know? At the top of the list is 2 chains. I'm not even a fan, you guys. But when I saw that, I'm like, why hasn't he called me? He's got my phone number, apparently. It was fascinating to see who had accessed my information. But 2 Chains was not somebody that I expected. I'll tell you that for sure. Um, Most interesting of all is that Facebook, and this is for everybody. This is for me. They do this for you. They do it for every single person on their platform. They actually summarize your entire existence into one single category for marketers. And so I looked mine up. And you know what they said about me? Dan is living an established adult life. (laughs) Thank you, Facebook. I'm nearly 40 years old. I should be. I called my dad. And I'm like, there you go. I am adulting so hard, dad. I am doing this right, according to the marketers. 
All right. That was me. Like there was this data dump on me. It was so fascinating, quite awkward, cringe-inducing to see all the stuff that I had said and done online and all the things that the social networks seemed to think were true of me. I was summarized in one neat little package. That was kind of hard for me to swallow. Now, it's funny that I had so much difficulty with it because this morning we're going to continue our series, Four Things That I Wish You Knew About God. And what's so interesting and why this whole Facebook thing relates is that we're digging into a passage from the Old Testament. It's only four verses long. It's quite short. But in this passage, God reveals what he is like. He tells us what categories he might fit into. He tells us what his name and character actually are. These four verses actually form a data dump on the divine. It's an opportunity for us to look and see what characteristics and qualities are true of God. Now, I've told you each week of this series so far, part of what makes this so interesting and so worthwhile is that these verses are not simply somebody telling you about God. It's not just a pastor standing on stage saying, okay, here's what you should know about God. I'm talking about a third party here. No, that's not at all what it is. When you read this passage in Exodus chapter number 34, you actually find God speaking for himself. He tells you from a first person perspective, this is who I am. This is what I like. These are my vital information. And so for us, it becomes this really important set of verses that we want to dig into, we want to pull out some different truths from, and I believe it has the power to change how you view God and perhaps even yourself as well. God, in these passages, reveals to us both his name and his nature. So let's dive right in. In Exodus chapter number 34, let's see what God has to say about himself. You have opinions about God. I have opinions about God. Everybody on the planet has opinions about God. What does God say about himself? Now, let me set this up before we read these verses here. Um, this, uh, this story takes place between, uh, God and, between God and a man named Moses. And Moses is a really well-known figure from the Old Testament. He was responsible for leading the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and into the promised land, into what we now know as Israel. And so he is a big, big figure in the Bible. And part of the reason he's such a big, big figure is not just because he led this giant group of people, but because he seemed to have a very special and close relationship with God. We told you how in earlier parts of the book of Exodus, the scripture tells us that Moses spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend face to face, which is not really what you would expect to hear. You wouldn't expect to hear that God is like a friend and he talks to people face to face. To be quite frank with you, I've never had that experience. I guess I'm not as holy as Moses. That's not that surprising either. But I've never spoken to God face to face. I have talked to him as a friend though. And so Moses has these interactions with God. And at one point in their conversational history, Moses says, now God, this is wonderful. Thank you for all that you've told me so far. But I'm wondering, would you reveal yourself to me? God, would you show me your glorious presence? Would you give me an experience of who you really are. And so God obliges. God shows up. They have a conversation. That conversation is recorded in Exodus chapter number 34. So here's what the scripture says. Then after Moses made this request, the Lord came down in a cloud 
and he stood there with him. And God called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, I am Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Verse 7, God says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, which is like wrongdoing. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. And then he says, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren so that even the entire family is affected, children to the third and fourth generation in some cases. Now, in verse 8, the Bible says Moses does what any of us would do if God showed up in front of us. He immediately threw himself to the ground and he worshiped. Hey, this is a deep passage. I mean, when we talk about a data dump, we can learn a lot about who God is and what he's like from this passage. And because at least the scripture makes the claim that it comes straight from God, you don't have to worry whether this is just Moses' opinion of who God is, but the claim is made at least that this is God speaking to us. Now, from this passage, we've kind of developed these four things that I wish you knew about God, but even more importantly, these are four things that God wished you knew about him. And so the first one is that God has a name. We talked about that last week. His name is Yahweh. It's spelled Y. H-W-H. And we talked about the meaning of the name Yahweh and why it's important and how he invites us to use his personal name in a relationship with him. If that's new to you or if it intrigues you, can I challenge you to go online and listen to last week's message? If you weren't here, you can find all of our former sermon, uh, former sermons on our website, connectcalgary.ca slash messages. And I would challenge you to go back and hear as we spent 30 minutes talking about the personal name of God. It is so important, and I really encourage you to check it out, okay? So God has a name. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that God is love. Then next week, we'll talk about the fact that God is trustworthy, that he's the same both in the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation and in the 21st century. And then the final week of this series, we're going to talk about the fact that God is just. He's just what? No, he's just. That means he does the right thing in every single circumstance. So maybe that'll tell you where we've been and where we're going, and I hope you'll follow through with us over the next couple weeks as we uh, uh, finish up this series. So let's start this morning with the thought that we gather here from Exodus 34, that God is love. You've probably heard that before. Um, Especially if you've been in church, you've probably heard God is love. But if you're not If you're not around church a lot, you might think to yourself, well, that's not the typical description of God, is it? Like the God that I've always heard about, I wouldn't describe as love. There are other words I might use. There are people in our city that would say from their perspective, God, or at least the God of the Bible is angry. He's not love, he's angry all the time. He's mad at somebody for doing something. They might also say this God is judgmental. He is always saying, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and I'm not happy with you, and that's wrong. And they might say, he's small. Any God who would say no to this person and pronounce judgment on that, that that God is small. He's not even worthy of worship. So how then can we say God is loving? 
If the typical and dominant narrative in our world is that the God of the Bible is always angry and judgmental, how can we say that his primary characteristic is love? Well, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, that right after Yahweh gives us his name, the first thing that he tells us about himself is that he is loving, or the way he phrases it is that he is full of compassion and mercy. Now, in ancient Hebrew, order is important. And so when something is included first in a conversation or a writing, it's because it is the primary thing that the speaker wants to communicate in that moment. It is the most important thing to grab a hold of. And so the very first thing, the thing that God leads with after he introduces himself by name is, I am a God who is full of compassion and mercy. Now, this makes sense. Like if you were in a meeting at work, maybe you had a project and you gathered a new team together and you were all going around the room quickly introducing yourself. If you wanted to introduce yourself to the team and tell a little bit about yourself, you wouldn't lead with some trivial detail. You wouldn't stand up and say, hi, I'm Karen. And in grade four, I sprained my ankle really bad and then sit back down. No, you would lead with important details, things that actually matter. Hi, I'm Karen. I've been at this company for 11 years. I'm super excited to be your project manager. You would go with what matters instead of like what's trivial, what's secondary, what would be smaller or less important. And this is what God does when he introduces himself to Moses. He says, Moses, here's my name. Now, let me tell you the most important thing about me. I am full of compassion and mercy. Now, these two words are really, really rich in Hebrew. I told you guys last week that this conversation happened in Hebrew. Uh, nobody in the Bible spoke English, and so it happened in Hebrew and in Greek in the New Testament. And in Hebrew, these two words together, the compassion and the mercy word, they are very, very rich. In English, it kind of seems like God is just repeating himself here. I'm full of compassion and mercy. Aren't those basically the same thing? Maybe God's just, you know, repeating himself to emphasize a point. In English, it seems that way. But in Hebrew, these are actually what we call a word pairing. And what that means is these two words have their own independent meanings apart from each other. But when we put them together, we get a very, very rich explanation of who God is. These two words actually help to define and explain each other. So let me put the first one here. We're going to talk about them just very briefly. I promise we're not going too deep on this this morning. Compassion. He says, I am a God full of compassion. Now, I love this word because when you study it out in the way that it was used in Hebrew, the word that we just translate as compassion in English, in Hebrew, the root actually means from a mother's womb, which is a really neat thought if you think about it. God says he is full of the feelings that a mother has for her infant child when he thinks of me, when he thinks of you. Now, wait, 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 Dan. Are you telling me that God is a mother? Are you saying he has a womb? I thought he was our heavenly father. Okay, I'm not exactly saying that God's a woman. Certainly not saying that. I'm not saying that God has a womb, but I would say that that metaphor is not far off from what God is communicating here. 
God also isn't a man, just so we're very clear. Although we use paternal language with God, um, he's no more man than he is woman. He's a spirit. He doesn't have gender. In fact, God encompasses both genders, but that's another topic for another day. Okay. When God describes his primary characteristic, he says, I have compassion. I'm like a mother caring for her infant child. I'm like a parent who cares for their kid. God is making a pretty bold claim here that he is tender, he's caring, he's protective over us. I mean, think about the way that you feel for your own kids. You always love them. Sometimes they drive you completely crazy. And other times you'll be sitting there watching them and they're playing, they're eating, they're just sleeping. And you are overwhelmed by a tidal wave of emotion comes out of nowhere, just wells up inside of you. Tears come to your eyes. You want to pinch their little cheeks so hard. You can't even explain why you have such strong feelings for these little guys, and yet you do. Have you ever asked yourself, where does that emotion come from? Why do I get so overwhelmed at times looking at these kids? I think that in that moment, you're experiencing just the tiniest fraction of what God experiences every moment for every person on the planet because he has compassion on his children. He looks at us the way a loving parent looks at their children. This word compassion, it is a feeling word. I mean, it, it, it has depth behind it. It's an emotional word. This might be a revelation in and of itself for some of you guys that God has feelings. God has feelings. You might not have ever considered that. You thought he was just some thing in the sky and you never thought about God having love or passion or compassion or desires, joy and happiness sadness, and sometimes even disappointment. You may have never thought about God in those terms, and yet the way that he introduces himself here in Exodus 34, he puts his feeling and emotional nature right up front. And he highlights that that emotional nature, it matters. It impacts the way that he relates to you and the way that you can relate to him. Of all the feelings that God feels, all the feels, he has love. He is love, primary, first and foremost. Let me tell you the number one thing about me. If you don't listen to anything else I say, God says, I am love. I have compassion. Now, the second word is similar, but somewhat different. The second word that he uses here is mercy. And whereas compassion is an emotional word, it's a feeling word. Mercy is an action word. It is like God saying, I will get involved when I need to get involved. I am not somewhere out there. I have not forgotten about any of you. I am here and I care and I am ready to intervene at the right moment. It literally means to show favor or to give aid, help in a time of need. So I want you to think about this for a sec. God uses these two words to introduce himself to me and to you. And these two words are supposed to communicate something together that separately they could not. He says, I am full of compassion. I have feeling and love towards every single one of you. And I am ready to move. 
I am ready to spring into action when needed, when invited. You couple these two words together and you know what you end up with? You end up with a promise and a description from God. He says about himself, I am the God who feels his children's pain and acts on their behalf. In those two words, he communicates that he feels for us and he acts among us all the time. God says he knows you and he cares about you. See, you might be here this morning and you're skeptical and that's cool. I wasn't raised in church. So the first several months, maybe even a year that I went to church, I was quite skeptical too. I used to sit back in the seats and have this inner argument with the pastor. He would make a point and I'm like, yeah, but what about this, man? If we ever had coffee, then I would do this and I would trump your argument. And I always won those arguments in my head, you know? Um, but I was always too scared to go have coffee with the pastor. And so I used to have this inner dialogue in my head and I always won and I always defeated every argument that was made. But you know what? The longer I sat there and listened to God reveal himself, rather than all of the things, the stereotypes, the ideas and opinions that I had heard about God, the longer I heard God talk about himself, I saw a God full of compassion and mercy, not the God of anger and judgment that I had always been led to believe. These two words give us a picture of Yahweh, that he is compassionate and he is merciful. He is tender. He is protective. He is providing. He is caring. He is correcting in in your life. It is like he really is your heavenly father. You see, when we come to God, whether it's Sunday morning on church or in church, whether it's during the week, you know, like late in the afternoon in the middle of our run down the road, if it's at work during our next big crisis, when we come to God, we are coming to a God who cares. We are coming to a God who feels the things that we're going through, and a God who is willing to step in and act in your life. He's just waiting for you to give him the permission and invitation to jump in, to get his hands dirty, and to do what only he can do in your life and situation. Now, look, knowing this has very profound implications about how you relate to God knowing that he has a personal name, knowing that his primary emotions towards you are love, mercy, compassion, graciousness. It really does change the way that you relate to God. See, the way I kind of read it, there are three primary ways that we can relate to God, three ways we could come to God. The first one is based on what we have done. That is, we come to God based on our works, and so when this is our attitude in our mindset, we might pray to God and we would say, God, you know, I'm a good person. I go to church all the time. I volunteer. I even give money. I'm like next level here, God. So because of all that stuff that I've been doing for you, would you then please, and then we give him our prayer request, whatever it might be. And it's all about us. It's based on what we have done. We think, okay, God, I've done all the right stuff. Therefore, now you should reward me. The problem with this approach is it assumes that God is in our debt, that he owes us anything simply because we've done what we would call the right thing. 
Can I tell you that our relationship with God is grounded in his nature, not our behavior? That he loves you even when you aren't doing the right things. That as your loving heavenly father, he'll answer your prayers even when you don't deserve it. And there are some times where from your perspective, you do deserve it and he still might say no. Because God does not relate to us and we cannot relate to God based on what we have done. In fact, I would suggest the only reason God gives us anything at all is because he is merciful, because he is our loving heavenly father. It's been said the only thing that can keep you from the mercy of God is believing that you deserve it. The moment you say, hey, God, I deserve this, You've lost it. You've misunderstood his nature and the nature of your relationship. Hey, this is why religious people are often furthest from God. Because we come to church and we do all the right things and we say, okay, God, surely I of all people have earned your favor. That's one way we can approach God. I don't think it's super helpful. There's a second way we can approach God and maybe this is the camp that you fall into. We approach God based on what's been done to us. So in the first one, we go to God and we say, God, this is what I've done. But in this second approach, we say, God, look what I'm going through. You know how much I've had on my plate lately. I am literally going through hell and it's not fair. So would you please come through? Would you please finally let up? Would you allow this to happen? Or would you allow that door to open? God, I just need you because right now, nothing has gone right for me. We're going to God based on our circumstances. And there may be a time for that. I'm not telling you that that's always wrong. But if that's the primary way that you approach and relate to God, can I just tell you that what you're doing is, A, you're playing the victim card. What healthy, loving father makes their child a victim? None. And so if you believe that God is a good, loving, healthy, heavenly father, then you know he would never make you the victim. So we play the victim card and we not so subtly imply that God has not done a good job caring for us. God, I'm not so sure you feel what I'm going through. And I don't know why, but it doesn't seem like you have acted on my behalf. Now, here's the problem with both of these approaches, coming to him based on our works, what we've done, coming to him based on our circumstances or what's been done to us. The problem is very quickly, Those become ways for us to manipulate God to get him to do what we want. You owe me because I've been serving you faithfully, or you owe me because you haven't given me what I've been asking you for this whole time. It's about about time you came through. Neither of those approaches to God is consistent with how he introduces himself and reveals himself in Exodus 34. There's another way that you can relate to God. Not based on what we have done, not based on what's been done to us, but we can relate to God based on who he is. That is based on his nature, based on his compassion, based on his love and mercy. Now, this takes some faith on your part that God really is a loving parent. But when you believe this deep down in your soul, your prayers sound different than the other ones we've talked about so far this morning. Your prayers instead say, God, I know that you are compassion. I believe it. You care about me. And God, I believe that you're merciful. You're ready to act. You're ready to get involved. 
and God, to be honest, you don't owe me a thing. My life is full of blessings already. But based on your nature as a good father, I'll ask you to give or to do and then fill in the blank. You see, those are very different approaches. One of them is all centered on you or your circumstances. The other one finds its basis in God's character. Can I challenge you to lean hard into God's character, to trust and believe that he is full of compassion and mercy for you? Even if you don't feel like it, it's true. This last approach recognizes that God's baseline emotion towards you is not anger or frustration or disappointment, it's love. His default position towards you and every other person on the planet is the love of a father towards a child not a judge towards a criminal. His default, his baseline emotion that he feels for you day in and day out is love. Now, some of you are saying, nice try, Dan. Nice try. You almost got me. But you can't change the subject that easily because I've read the Bible. And there are instances where God is angry and he does judge people. And heck, even in the passage that you read for us a moment ago, he said he is going to punish children for the sins of their parents. That doesn't sound like a very loving, compassionate, merciful, gracious God to me. And you know what? You're right. You're right in saying and acknowledging that God gets angry. He does. You're right in saying God holds people accountable. He does. And at Connect Church, I'm just going to tell you, we are never going to try to tame God. I'm never going to try to sand down the rough edges. Do you know how easy it would have been for me to just read those first three verses in Exodus chapter 34, leave off the last one, since most of you never read the Bible on your own anyway, you wouldn't have known differently. So I could have just presented this picture of the always loving heavenly father who never gets angry, but no, we're going to show you who God reveals himself to be. So this is why the rest of this series is so important. Where we're going over the next couple days really, really matters, couple weeks. It really, really matters, and I hope you're going to be back for the next two services. Because if you've ever struggled with the stuff that you've read in the Bible about God, things he said, things he's done, things he's asked some of his followers to do, If you read Exodus 34, verse 7, and you're like, how could God say that he would lay the sins of one person at the feet of another person? If you've asked yourself, why does it seem like God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament? The next two weeks are going to be all about that. We're going to spend two weeks talking about why God does the things he does and how it does not deny or contradict his loving nature. But let me get the ball rolling just real quick. We're wrapping up here. Let me get the ball rolling this morning and point out something that you probably skimmed over and didn't even give a second thought to in those verses we read a moment ago. We'll put them back here on the screen. We won't read the whole thing. But can I just point out here that when God speaks of his love, he says his love is lavished on a thousand generations. When God speaks of his justice, his righteousness, his anger, even his judgment, when he speaks of those things, he said it extends to the 
third and fourth generation. Now listen, that matters. There is a reason God said it that way. There is something he is trying to communicate to us. You see, this is actually a very poetic way of saying that God's scales are heavily unbalanced. That there is mercy available from God that will always be there. And yes, there are times he gets angry. And yes, there are times he executes judgment on the world. But for every time he executes judgment, do you realize there are hundreds, thousands, even millions of times that he gives mercy instead of judgment to you? In fact, I would argue that part of the reason that God's judgment seems so strange and hard to swallow is because it is out of character with the way that God is 99% of the time in our life that you experience God's mercy in every moment of every day so that anytime he actually chastens you as a child, it just seems like completely out of the blue. And in that moment, we're like, oh, how could you be so harsh to me? And God's like, what about every other moment of every other day? Listen, you think that God is just waiting to punish you. According to God's revelation, his self-disclosure, He is not waiting for reason to punish you. He is waiting for opportunity to lavish love on you. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's after. Even when you don't deserve it, you still receive it. I love what James, James was the brother of Jesus. And he wrote a book of the Bible. James chapter number two, verse 13 The scripture says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yep, there's judgment. But it seems like in any way he possibly can, God is looking for a reason to give mercy rather than judgment. He is looking to communicate all the feels he has towards you each and every moment of the day rather than just waiting for the opportunity to squash you. So stop seeing God as the perfectionist cop who's constantly chasing after you to punish you for all of your screw-ups. Stop seeing him as a God that's distant and you have to beg him in order to come to your rescue. Instead, could I just encourage you to see yourself as a son or a daughter on their daddy's lap? Could I encourage you to believe, to trust, even if it's only by faith, that God is love, that Yahweh is your heavenly father. And the thing that he wants most from you is relationship. It's to share love. It's to help you to experience life overflowing through Jesus. 